The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are good to make, as was prayed earlier, to, to make this place, this world, to make us and then to commit yourself to remaking us in our fallenness you have drawn near to save, to make us new and to draw us into your presence. You're good to do this and we say thank you. And as we sung earlier, we receive these blessings from you. We receive this good touch from you so as to declare your praises here and everywhere. You are good. We want all to know that and all to be drawn to you and all to be drawn into worship of you because you are worthy of that worship. And it is our joy to do so. So Lord, would you now speak to us in this passage to show us something fresh and new or perhaps new again to show us something of who you are, to draw out from us thanksgiving and praise and rest and encouragement. Something here good about you, something trustworthy. So open our eyes to it. In a familiar passage, Lord, we, are, we know the, the facts of this passage. Will you open our eyes to help us to see it, to be drawn to you, to rest in you, praise you and to declare you as the one we need. Make the passage clear, Lord. Will you commission your spirit to move through the room and to clear away all distraction from, from our hearts, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, the physical circumstances around us? Would you, would you gather our attention to your word and speak to grow us up? This we need from you, and so please do it now. Speak in your word, make it clear, lift up Christ and build your people. Thank you, Lord. We trust this time to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 22. We've been following along in the events of this chapter covering the Passover feast that last evening before the cross. We saw there Jesus use that meal to explain his ministry, the main purpose of which is about to be realized. He has come, Jesus has come to be the great Passover lamb. The sacrifice provided by God, provided by God to us, sacrificed so that the wrath of God can be turned from people onto Jesus, onto the sacrifice, from all who trust him onto Jesus. That's the plan of God. It's been the plan of God for forever past. Jesus knows that. Jesus said so. And then he also said, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. He said that too. He's completely aware of what is going on and of what is coming. The disciples aren't aware. They don't realize that Judas is about to betray Jesus and that that betrayal then will lead to the cross. This sacrifice of Jesus is about to take place, and Jesus knows it. Being God, he knows it. Having read the scriptures, he understands it. But then also as a man, he dreads it. This is what we looked at last week. To be the Passover lamb. To be the one upon whom the wrath of God in fullness falls. Figuratively speaking, to take in hand the cup of the wine of the fury of God and drink it all the way down. It's an agonizing thing to consider. The word was actually in the passage last week, agony. 
Jesus looks at it and being God knows what the wrath of God is and knows it's coming to him and as a man dreads it and is, is fearful of it. And so he collapses into the presence of God the Father that evening there on the Mount of Olives praying, Oh Father, if there is another way if there is another way to accomplish the redemption of your people, another way that your wrath can be made to pass over them, they can be forgiven, let that other way come. I would love for there to be another way. But I most want your will to be done. That's Jesus' real and gripping and agonizing and honest and faithfully dependent prayer. Faced with that kind of pressure, that kind of coming affliction, he turns to God the Father and lays it all out in front of him, praying, asking, surrendering, depending, and God meets him and he is strengthened from heaven. Not that the stuff would be removed, but strengthened to go through it, even as it intensifies. That's the perfect human Jesus modeling for us what he also commands then of us to do at the beginning and end of the passage. Go to the Father and pray. Pray that you might not be tempted. Go and commune with him in prayer. So he models it and shows it and then commands it in the front and the back. That was last week. Father, if there is another way, let that be. And now in our passage today, beginning in verse 47, immediately on the heels of this passage on prayer comes the answer. The betrayer comes, and so then does the cross. As we look at this passage, it is, it's familiar. You know, there's, you know, there's no, no spoiler alert here. Jesus is going back, about to get betrayed. We know that. He's been talking about it for a long time. We're very familiar with it. But as, as we look at this passage, what we need to see here, less than the, the what happens, because we already know that, it's the who right in the middle of it, the, the Jesus that's right there in the middle of it. As we look at him, think about him, the poise, the control, the, the, the humility, the kindness, the love, the power, it's remarkable here. This is a passage that on the one hand is about betrayal, but on the other hand is really about Jesus. So that's what we need to keep in mind as we look at this. We're, we'll notice the events, sure, but we're looking at Jesus here and, and who he is and how he is. And he's remarkable. So I'm going to read this passage and make two observations from it. Here it is in Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. While he, that's Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke 22. Two observations. Here's the first. In the, in the face of deceptive, destructive hypocrisy, Jesus is still in control. In the face of deceptive, destructive hypocrisy, Jesus is still in control. Throughout the book of Luke, we have seen a lot about the authority and the power of Jesus. It was prayed about earlier today, healing people, forgiving sin, 
relating to spiritual forces and the forces of nature. We've, we've seen a lot of that, but here we have something a little bit different introduced to us in this passage, at the beginning and at the end especially. There are three quotations from Jesus addressed to three different crowds that form three mini-scenes in this passage. And the first one and the last one have something in common. Jesus speaks, confronts the people he's talking to, and brings out something hidden and reveals it. The evil hypocrisy of his audience. Verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking about this prayer and temptation, the original language then says, behold, a crowd, presenting it as if suddenly the crowd just appeared. Meant to be shocking, though we know it's coming, of course, but it's meant to be, look, and who do you think is at the head of it? Judas, one of the 12, in case we've forgotten, one of the closest hand-picked friends is leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him, to greet and embrace Jesus using that intimate, friend-based greeting of a kiss on the cheek. From the other Gospels, we understand that Judas had presumed that Jesus would allow him to approach that close like a friend, would allow him to kiss him, would kiss him back. And so Judas had set that up to be the signal. It's dark. They're going to have a hard time identifying who's who. So he says, the one that draws me close, that embraces me in his arms, the one that I kiss as a friend, that's the one to rest. Here, in this passage, we don't get that. All we get is Jesus' statement to him. Judas, with a kiss. Kiss is front-loaded to emphasize this. With this sign of friendship and love and peace, you betray me? Doesn't stop it. Just calls it out. Just points it out. We are meant to see the hypocrisy in this moment. You act like my dear friend while you raise the knife. Hypocrisy, which is also a large point in the third section at the end, beginning in verse 52 and following. Then Jesus said to, and notice this group here in Luke, the other Gospels emphasize the crowd in general, or the servants of the high priests and whatnot, but Luke focuses on the various Jewish leaders. They are the ones that Jesus is addressing specifically in Luke here. To the chief priests, he speaks, and the officers of the temple, that is, the commanders of the temple guard, and the elders, the religious and military and civil leaders have all come out against him. Obviously, their men are here too. One of them gets, gets struck down and, and then uh, healed. But the remarks are directed at the leaders. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? The obvious answer is yes. They have come as if Jesus is a dangerous criminal. But in verse 53, then he says, when I was with you day after day, all day long in the temple, unarmed, surrounded, you didn't lay any hands on me then. Why didn't you arrest me then when you had such an easy chance? What he's getting at here, of course, is their real concern, which we know about because we've been seeing they are concerned about the people and how they'll look to the people. They're leaders, which is why Luke emphasizes he's talking to the leaders here. The leaders' main concern in all of this in relation to Jesus is their own standing in relation to the people, their own position of authority, their own position of power. They talk like they're concerned about God and righteousness and 
and protection of the people and the good of the nation and, and what the scriptures require and demand. They talk like that, but really, bottom line, whenever Jesus shows them up, shows that he understands the scriptures better, shows that the people are beginning to follow him, what they're really concerned about is their own authority and power, and that's why they have to eliminate Jesus. But they can't say that in public in front of everybody. So they talk one way in public and come at night by themselves where nobody will see to solve the problem. It's hypocrisy. Beginning in the end of the passage, Jesus deals with malicious hypocrisy. It's deceptive. Deceptive behavior so as to destroy. That's what concerns us about hypocrisy. We, we talk about hypocrisy and we say it's wrong, but if you stop and think about what is it about hypocrisy that really bothers us, it's that it's deceptive to destroy. We, we do okay if it's people just against us, but when they seem to be for us and then stab us in the back, when they play a game so as to destroy, that's what's the problem. And that's what the problem is here. Jesus deals with two different groups, an individual and a group of people, who are deceptively out to destroy him and, in fact, the rest of the people so as to serve themselves. That concerns us in the world when we suffer from that. And Jesus has faced this, has known it is coming all along, has seen it is approaching and calls it out, not just to say, you know, hypocrisy is wrong. He's not saying that. And he obviously isn't stopping it. So what's going on? Why bother to call it out, to, to point it out? So that everybody who's listening in, Luke's original audience, us, as we listen in and, and, and follow along, we hear Jesus saying, in effect, I want you to all be aware of this. I see it. I know it. This is all in hand. It's on purpose. I didn't get deceived here or tricked, fooled, overpowered. In fact, if you look closely, I'm running my own arrest. Even intervening to stop it from being stopped. Right in the middle, when he, when he shuts down the, the violent resistance. I'm orchestrating all of the events here, I'm in charge of this whole thing. You didn't see it coming, but I did. In the face of this deceptive and destructive hypocrisy, Jesus is in control, and he underlines that even a little bit more at the very end of verse 53. When he asks him the hypothetical question, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you arrest me then? But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We're looking at an event here that Jesus clarifies for us, this here, right now, it's the power of darkness having its moment. You remember Satan himself personally intervened here to move Judas to betray him. This is darkness in full force reaching out to seize Jesus, plotting and scheming and deceiving and succeeding for a moment. This is their hour. Darkness runs at high tide. If, think about it like this. You've got, a, you've got a, a bug floating along on the surface of the water, completely unaware, and the fish rises and strikes, takes it, and runs. And the line sings as it runs off the reel as the fish swims into the depths, carrying along his food and the hook. As you stand there and you hear the line go, it's gone. And we're shocked by it. Where'd the crowd come from? And Judas, the torches and the swords and the clubs. I think I know where this is going. This is terrible. 
It's the power of darkness allowed its moment succeeding today and, and tonight at the trial and tomorrow morning and there's going to be a cross and the sky is going to be darkened and Christ will be crucified and put into a hole in the ground, darkness sealed up. This is disastrous. Where did that come from? Out of left field. We're blindsided by it. It's the moment of darkness in great evil and it is all happening according to plan. I got this. It's under control. I saw it coming. I see it right now. It's okay. Says the Lord. It's all working according to plan and we need to see that with regards to Jesus here it is remarkably if you, if you stop and consider Jesus in this moment, it is remarkable to look at him here. The text emphasizes while he was still speaking. This is like part two of verse 46. Read, read it like this, verse 46. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Oh my goodness, a crowd. It's, it's that close. Jesus, back up one step further, dripping in sweat, praying bullets of agony. Father, the cup, if there's another way, can there be another way? And he rises up, and here comes the crowd, poised. Remarkable. Here comes the guy carrying the cup. And Jesus stands there, and looks at him and said, with a kiss, you betray me. He didn't run. He didn't try to run them off. He stopped the violent resistance. This is Jesus who beseeches, who, who desperately wants another way for redemption to happen. There's the answer. Your will be done. It's Jesus, totally in control, reaching out and grabbing hold of Judas and pulling him near, grabbing hold of the cross and pulling it near. What a Jesus. Fully aware of the agony and drawing it onto himself. The awareness, the, the control, the authority here, and, and the meekness that it is amazingly joined to. Your will be done. Here's your will. Very well. Let's, let's do that. Good. There's a sweet determination here in Jesus to endure the cross and to accomplish the great Passover. He's going silent like a lamb led to slaughter, all in his complete knowledge and under his complete control. It is an amazing and stunning testimony about himself, who he is, and about his love for his Father and for his people. And then more than that, there is something very encouraging there for us as we consider today what that means in our situations where we face such destructive deception ourselves. It means the same thing. He's still in control. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 35 to 38 with Jesus' warning there about the coming rejection that we would face in the world. That's not going to be easy. But sometimes when we meet rejection from, from friends or family members around us, other people around us, and we realize that what's driving it is really misunderstanding, in, in the truest, genuine sense, ignorance. They don't really understand who Jesus is. don't really understand what the gospel of grace is, and that's why they reject it. That, that may still leave the rejection hard, but in a way, it's easier because it makes some sense. People rejecting things they don't accurately understand makes sense. But then sometimes you meet people who understand. 
who get it, maybe even used to overtly agree with the Christian message and link arms with us, with you. Somebody who used to be a a leader in in the church, a local church or the church larger, or a spouse or a friend. Somebody who was close to you and you thought, man, we we are brothers. And then you find out that person is, nope, not. That can be particularly painful because of the, I didn't see that coming. It's a punch in the gut. It's a surprise. It's a shock. Or people who don't really They can't say they don't understand because they really don't even care to understand. They've just decided things are going to be one way, and so they reject us. Really just loving power. They act like they're about tolerance. They act like they're about truth. They love science and facts. They really don't want to be bothered with the facts. That can be frustrating. Maybe less painful, but frustrating. So spiritual opposition that comes from some sort of deception and some sort of destruction, that that can be hard and painful when it's someone close to us, but really this goes beyond even just spiritual opposition to normal things in life. Spouses carrying on adulterous affairs while still coming home every night smiling. When you find that out, that hurts. Ten times as hard as I just don't want to be with you. The deception, the low blow, the boss at work getting ready to fire you while commending you. The friend at school who's been your best buddy until you find out that all the while he's been making fun of you behind your back. Wherever it is, trust that is betrayed and inflicts harm is uniquely painful because of the trust element. I gave myself to you in some way. I, I, I opened up in some way and you used that to advance yourself and hurt me. That's in life. We're vulnerable and we're unaware of what might get us and and how we might be hurt. And so one way that we commonly deal with that is we decide I'm not going to be vulnerable at all. I'm not ever going to put myself in a situation of trusting anybody. Well, that's, we can't live well like that. There's, there's There's a hope here. Do you see that when, when we've got a, a Jesus like this, we can say, I'll, I will be vulnerable. I will, I will put myself in situations. I will love people. I will open myself up to people. I will put myself in spots where I might be stabbed in the back. Trusting in this one who sees it all and is in control of it all. He controls how long the hour of darkness lasts and just how far it runs. He doesn't say that you won't ever get hurt. He says, I will be in control of it. I see through all the hypocrisy and all the deception. I see the the ill ends planned and plotted. It's under my hand. I've got it. Like God said, Satan in the book of Job. You you can go this far, but no farther. He he draws a line there. Evil has an hour. It it has a moment, but only a, a moment. There is a time when the fish runs, and then there's a time when the fisherman sets the hook, and it's over. And he comes back, pulled, It may 
and there's no there's no sugarcoating pain in the fallen world. When we talk about the hour of darkness, we talk about Satan being on a leash, we need to always keep in mind that cost Job all of his children, all of his livelihood, and his health. It cost Jesus his life. It made him drink the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. There is real pain when darkness runs. But it is constrained and controlled and reigned over and regulated by this one. He holds the line, he, he holds the leash in a firm hand and will stop it at the right place in the right time when the hour is finished. That was how it was with him. It is how he always is and is now with us. There is encouragement in that. But there wouldn't be if it wasn't for the second point. I'm assuming the second point as I'm talking about this. To know that Every, to us, unseen plan that is schemed against us is under the hand of this Jesus is only encouraging because of who this Jesus is. If he was evil, we'd have trouble. But he's not. Brings us to the second point. Jesus' control is for the sake of the gracious redemption of others. Jesus' control is for the sake of the gracious redemption of others. You see how these, these things, they, they dovetail together here. Throughout the passage, he's in charge. And then we move and say, towards what end, for what purpose? That's why it's encouraging that he's in charge because we know what he's going to do with it. His, his power and authority is seen everywhere, but it is especially clear right in the middle in the moment of violence in verses 49 and 50. The disciples see what's, what's going on, what's going to happen, and they are jolted into resistance. As we said before, they misunderstood what he said about buying swords up above they thought he meant that literally. thought he meant literally we're going to have to fight the enemy. And if that's what he meant literally, then now would apparently be the right time for that. And so they ask some, should we strike? And one doesn't bother to wait for the answer, just starts swinging. Verse 50. Swinging for the head, he slightly misses and cuts off the right ear. One of the high priest's servants, you can kind of see the sword coming down and glancing off the side of his head. Which means there's blood and screaming and probably about to be an overwhelming counterattack. They have two swords facing a mob that's armed. Jesus then brings it to a sudden halt with a stern command. Stop. Enough. And then he touched the man and healed him. And then moving on, he turned to speak to the leaders. And you kind of want to say, whoa, whoa. Luke, hold on. <laughs> he just stopped the fight, touched the wounded man and healed him, and then moved on? This must have been supremely odd. He didn't fight back. He didn't run. They didn't all scatter. The guy's ear, the side of his head is fine. Doesn't hurt. But there's blood on his shoulder and neck. Maybe on the sword. 
And he's standing there kind of stunned, and everything's fine. And moving on, let me talk to the leaders now. That's odd. It's presented oddly. This is Jesus displaying his sovereign power. It's the last miracle of Jesus' earthly life. And it's presented, very matter of fact, well, of course, and anyway, moving on. I think because we're supposed to think, well, of course, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. Jesus would not strike down this man. Jesus, of course, would heal him. Jesus, of course, would love his enemies and pray for those who persecute him, not try to kill them. Of course. His whole goal here, towards which he's using his power right in that moment there, his whole goal throughout is to use his power, to use his control of the situation here in sacrificial service to others. He is working for redemption. To redeem others. Seen in his compassionate love of his enemy right here. Seen in how he protects his own people from being wiped out. This is just who he is. It's just how he is. And on top of these particular little details, we got to consider the whole situation. Why is Jesus even standing in the garden in the first place, right where Judas knew he would be? Why does he stand when he sees the crowd coming? Why does he embrace Judas? Why, why, why any of this? Why let darkness have its way? Because he is here on purpose to redeem in the fullest sense, not just to redeem this guy's ear and fix that, but to redeem us spiritually, those of us who are ruined spiritually, and that's all of us. He's here because that's the Father's will, and Jesus is greatly, passionately committed to doing the Father's will. Whatever it costs him, I'm here to redeem your people. Like a meek lamb, controlling my arrest to make sure that it happens, because I'm here to lay down my life for them. This is someone you want to follow. This is Jesus who is in control. In control of himself and in control of situations that are hidden to other people. In control of the physical nature as he heals ears. This is Jesus who's in control. Towards what end? Towards your good. Towards your good. He can do anything and he decides what to do within a framework of good, mercy, compassion, in a framework of God glorifying wide, long, high, deep love. He loves even his enemies. How do you think he loves you? So you can know if and as he determines that in, in your life there is a period in which darkness will have a run, you can know some things. We, we cannot know everything about how and everything about why and everything about how long and, and everything about how all of these things are related in our lives and what, what the grand, we cannot know everything, but we can know some things. We can know the character in particular, the character of this one who reigns and this one who loves us and this one who is using his power committed to redeem his people. That's what he uses it for. For you, Graciously and wisely, he is accomplishing good redemption in your life. It is, is very normal 
and, and easy, I think, to hear the first point about God's control. And, it, and if you're a Christian, you read the Bible much, you hear God's control, the king reigns over darkness, and then you say, sure, of course, yes, that's an obvious point. And then the darkness comes, and then the person you didn't suspect at all punches you in the gut. And you think, what's going on, God? Why? Yes, of course, I know God reigns. But then the reaction in the moment is, is different. Maybe you get angry, or maybe you're just tempted to fight back and solve the problem and, and not wait to hear what God's doing and what God says about it. But what God means to, to, to help us with in the moment is, is to say, there, there are two things at work here, and I, and I plead with you. God's Spirit would plead with you to take them both and hold them in front of yourself and, and preach them to yourself and gaze upon them until you actually believe them and rest your soul in them. That here is a God who is almighty and a God who is passionately for you. Both together. Not one or the other, both together. It is doctrine that cannot be just affirmed and discarded, but it must be brought into the gut punch. It's not a surprise to him, he reigns over it, and he is about your redemption in it. One of the core elements, of course, one of the core elements of God's redemptive work in us is to save us from the penalty of sin. That's what's going on here first and foremost, front and center, is that he's going to the cross to be the lamb that takes the wrath, to remove off of those who trust him God's wrath. You can be forgiven, you can be saved. Redemption. Condemned, saved. That is a core element to God's redemptive work. But then... Having redeemed us, he is now committed to redemption for life. To be redeeming us from our fallenness, from our sickness, from our frailty, from our brokenness. We are, in ways that are hard to understand and sometimes disappointing have you ever been there you ever, you ever looked at yourself and said yuck I mean really I, I, I just recently had a moment when I I'm just walking down the hall and come upon an innocent situation and I, I presume one thing and I get this thing rises up in me, and then 10 seconds later, I am made aware that I was wrong about it, and I'm shocked at the conclusion I jumped to. How judgmental I was in that moment, right away. How stupid. I read the whole thing wrong and jumped to judging conclusions. Yuck. There's... There is not much hope for me at all to look at the cup of God's wrath and take that to myself or to, to draw near Judas's, to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. There's not much hope in me at all to do that. If I, if I respond like that in this situation, that's you too. It's commanded of us, required of us. We've read the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about it repeatedly. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. When they steal from you, give them the rest of your life also. Forgive. That's pretty hard for us. We are redeemed, but a long way from being the type of image bearer that we are supposed to be that would honor God that the world needs to see and really that you want to be. It is a glorious thing to walk, to be Christ-like. It is a glorious thing to walk, to be righteous and just and holy and pure and a lover of other people, a giver to them. It's a glorious thing. It honors God. It testifies to them about the truth about him. And it, 
It's good for us, and we are a long way from it. Thank God that he is committed to use his power to redeem us. It's a good thing, because we need to be redeemed. How, how does he do that? Well, in, in one way we can say we understand the basics of that. The Bible tells us that we are transformed when we are changed in our minds, not just in the facts that we know, but in our perception of them. We are transformed as our minds are renewed. The Bible also will tell us mentioned this recently in some other settings, that as we behold the glory of Jesus, we are transformed to be like him. So then here's a passage that shows us the glory of Jesus and helps us think about him and to see him well and to see him accurately. And we see a Jesus who is in, in control of a situation, even in a gut-wrenching situation, and willingly puts himself there so that, so that we can be redeemed healed, loves other people with his power. We see that, and we are wooed. We are, we are drawn to him, and that is so attractive, and it changes us how we process and think and see on the inside, and we become different. We become more like him. That's what the Bible says. But in, in another sense, how does that work? It's kind of hard to say. In some way, he uses everything that we encounter, he reigns over and uses it, including, including the darkness. Somehow he uses all of that to work in us, sometimes a disenchanting with the world or a a realization of who we really are. An awareness of the, the folly of trusting in men. A, a frightening as we see what people are capable of, what, what sin really looks like. A hopelessness when we see that there's no way to, there's no way to be rescued from this, this place. He uses darkness in, I don't know how, And then against that shows himself in, in glorious, delivering power. And we're changed. It's a bit like, like asking and, and looking at, at children growing up. We know something about vitamins and minerals and exercise, but we don't really understand and can't really even see it moment by moment. But we grow. thing that we can see, the thing that some things that we can know, we can know this Jesus. We can see how he acts and what drives, what governs his actions. We can see that he embraced darkness. Though he had it under his control, he embraced it, was not surprised by it, walked into it, and came out the other side for our redemption. And that's a God you can trust. This is the one who says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. How? Trust me. I'll give you rest. Come. We're vulnerable people. In a world that still sees darkness running. And the good news is that we have a Savior who is almighty and controls it and controls it to redeem us. Let me pray.
Lord, will you help us to see you in this story? To see you poised. To see you reigning. And to see you humbly surrendering. And to see why. The joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame. You are now seated at the right hand. And from there you reign. And from there you intercede for us. And, and there you await our coming. And then we will feast. But until then, Lord, we, we look for you to meet us and, and defeat us now as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So will you reign, please? Will you give us a confidence that you reign over what we can't see, what we don't know? When we're wounded and deceived and frustrated by hypocrisy, Give us the confidence that you reign over it, that you're using it for our good. You grow then in us character like yours, a power under control, a meekness, a love of others, even those who oppose us. You must do this. It is supernatural work, so please Spirit of God, please make us a people like that. Draw us to resemble you. Remove out of us the tendency to get angry and the tendency to war against the world. Give us rest in you. Give us hearts like yours. We trust this to you. And say thank you for being a God for us in power. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.